Tonight's New Testament reading is found on page three in your bulletins. It's Romans 3, Romans 4, 13 through 25. Romans 4, 13 through 25. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For, it, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were, written, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray? Oh God, living God, whose word is alive, will you make yourself known? Would you rise in our hearts, Jesus, every heart here, that we might know that you have not left us alone, that you are the personal God that has come to know us, deliver us, and bring us to yourself. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, in our community, we've had really uh, a wonderful and powerful week remembering and rehearsing the events of Jesus' suffering, his uh, crucifixion. And for the climax this evening, we get to focus in on his resurrection. And as I said earlier, in the Christian faith, um, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. But we go a little bit deeper this Sunday as we consider his word together. And when I say it's a climax, it's really not an exaggeration. Uh, I think it's fair to say that every provision of God, every promise of God, every deliverance of God, every blessing of God is attached to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. One of those blessings is life after death the afterlife. Now, over 50-plus years in America, there have been a lot of opinions that have changed. Public opinions have changed as they poll people. You know, maybe it's on how we understand health and healthy eating. Maybe it's the public opinion on uh, who we would elect and wouldn't elect. 
Maybe it's the public opinion on marriage recently. Lots of opinions have changed, but one remarkably has remained consistent, and that's views on the afterlife. Uh, CBS did a poll in 2014, and they found that things really hadn't changed much since 1944. 66% of people uh, believed in heaven and hell. 11% of people believed in heaven. A year before, they did a poll among those that identify as agnostic and atheist and found that among them, 27% of agnostics and 13% of atheists believed in some afterlife. So while views change about religion, they change about whether God exists, one thing that hasn't changed is this view that there's something else. There's more to this life. There's an afterlife. And so, if many of us in this room fall into that category, and I think many of us do, it would be wise for us and worthy of us to think a little bit about that this evening, to meditate on it. And the New Testament is filled with writings about this, filled with teaching about the afterlife. We're focusing in on one, Romans chapter 4, and as you heard it read, you probably thought, I don't see it. Uh, I don't see it, and it'll be my job to help you see it this evening. But what we find is a relationship between this discussion of Abraham, Abraham who lived many thousand years ago and trusted God, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in two questions in particular I want us to focus on. What is the afterlife about, and how do we obtain it? Those are two fundamental questions, but very important questions. What is the afterlife about? And how do we obtain it? Let's look at the first one. What is the afterlife about? Now, as long as there have been visions about the afterlife, beliefs about it, uh, there have different ways to try to understand it. In the first century, uh, in the Greco-Roman period, when Paul was writing, uh, they believed that the god Hermes would come after you died and lead you down to a riverbank. And then you would be led across a river on a boat into a courtroom. And at that courtroom, you would find your destiny. And if you were righteous enough, you would head to fields of glory. And if you weren't, you would go to a very dark place. Or Buddhism and Hinduism teach that your destiny is based on karma. Karma is the sum of your good deeds and your bad deeds. And when you end your life, those will be weighed. And that will then lead to your reincarnation, whether you be reincarnated to a lower form, an animal, or whether you get to be reincarnated into a human form, where you'll then do the cycle over and over again. Uh, Roman Catholic theology teaches purgatory after death, that there is a belief in a cleansing period until one is freed from their sins and they achieve heaven. And then in the modern day that we live in, there's plenty of these views. We hear it echoing in the films and stories, you know, whether it be a field of dreams, right, years and years ago where heaven's basically a baseball diamond where we get to play and have fun, or Charlie St. Cloud, more recent film. And even in the lighthearted language, uh, some of you may have been familiar with the um, uh, show that uh, James Lipton hosted for years, the Inside the Actors Studio. And he would ask the actors uh, questions, and he'd interview them at the end, he'd ask them the same 10 questions. And the last one was always this, if heaven exists, if heaven exists, what would you like God to hear when you see him? Uh, and the, these were some of the, the highlights. Uh, comedian Billy Crystal said, I'd like to hear God say, you're on in 10 minutes, right? <laughs> you're on in 10 minutes. 
uh, Dave Chappelle uh, said he'd like to hear, congratulations, Bill, you've become a law. And then James Gandolfini, the, it took you a while to get that. He's, he's a bright comedian. Even in Washington, it took you a while to get that. Uh, James Gandolfini said uh, he'd like to hear, take over for a while, I'll be right back. Right? But, you know, even in that lighthearted stuff, we hear things that are true that we desire in our own heart and life. The idea that the afterlife would be a place where I get to still do the things that I want to do. The afterlife would be a place where I'm significant. The afterlife would be a place where I have position, right? These are the things that each one of us desire. They're not that far off. Well, when we come to what Paul tells about, about Abraham, we start to get a glimpse of it. Abraham and those that have the faith of Abraham are told that they will be heirs of the world. Not a small thing. Heirs of the world. Now, to be an heir is to be a person that has legally, you've been legally entitled to the property of another person, right? Maybe some of you have inherited things. A son or daughter that inherits from their parents. Now, when you think about God, He owns a lot, doesn't He? He owns every inch of the earth. He owns every star in the heaven. He owns every cattle on a thousand hills. And for those that are actually in God, related to God through Jesus Christ, it means that you are inheritor of a lot, of everything. In fact, God will withhold nothing from you. This is the biggest inheritance you could ever imagine. This is what is given to the people that are in relationship to God through his son, Jesus Christ. But this inheritance began for Abraham with a promised land. Abraham was called to follow God and wander and leave his place, and God said, I'm going to give you a land. But even then, Abraham, by faith, was able to see God was going to give him a lot more. We're told in the book of Hebrews, he saw a city whose architect and builder was God himself. Abraham was looking to the city of an afterlife. And then the New Testament tells us more and more about that. In the book of Revelation, we're told that this new city will be a place where God himself dwells, and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more sickness, no more heartache. And we will live under the declaration of the Son of God who says, Behold, I have made all things new. Newness happening constantly. Recreation happening constantly. We're also told that it's not just a heaven in the earth, but it's a new heavens and a new earth that God gives to us. That the project that was started in the book of Genesis, chapter 1 and 2, will be rebooted. That desire that we were called to be fruitful and multiply, that desire you have to work and to follow God, culture building, culture making, all these things are involved being heirs of the new world. In addition, we're told that the division between nations will be healed. Don't we long to hear that today? Divisions between nations will be healed. Between races will be healed. In addition, that the nations will walk by the light of Christ, and the gates of the city will never be closed because no one will ever be afraid. They'll never have to lock the doors anymore. Heirs of this world. We're then told that the people of God will be glorified. What does that mean? To be sinless, to have your body as it should be, for you to be fully who God has always meant you to be. You perfected potential, everything you were meant to be by God. 
Heirs of the world will experience this. This is the view. The apostle, the apostle Paul in the book of Corinthians refers to the prophet Isaiah, and he sums it up this way. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. What Jesus sums up as abundant life. Everything good, everything right, everything true, everything beautiful will be fulfilled and will be blossoming. Now, I've asked you this before, but I'd ask you again, doesn't that vision resonate with who you are? Doesn't that resonate with who humanity is, what we dream about, what our work is about, who we understand ourselves to be? Much different than a vision that you would sort of evaporate into a, a, a cosmic mind of consciousness, or you would be absorbed into a ground of being, or you would recycle yourself through all these different animals and different people. Isn't this the vision that God has put in our breast? He names it for us, heirs of the world. And by Abraham, by the faith of Abraham, rather, and those who share in it, we get to put our foot into that world. We get to step into that world. We get to begin to live in that world now. Not just look ahead, not just wonder, gee, what does the afterlife hold? But the Scripture also talks about another afterlife. There's reference to it as we look at the words death and transgression. The book of Revelation puts it this way, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It's talking about hell. Now, I know for some of you that might mean, seem shocking, but I would just say this. It really isn't when you think about it. Have you ever longed for a world, or have you ever said to yourself, I wish they could bring to judgment, judgment and justice those that blow up innocent people, those that abuse my loved ones, those that defraud people of their own inheritance so they, they live in poverty? those that oppress or try to annihilate races. Have you ever said, I long for judgment to come? If you have, then you resonate with the heart of God. But that leads to the question, how do you and I then obtain this world, this afterlife? How do we then become heirs of this world? And this is where the Bible really does a 360 from all different worldviews out there, where it really changes things. Now, you know, in the ancient, as I was reading this week about afterlives and views of that, there was a theme I saw, whether it be the Greco-Roman world, or whether it be in the Eastern philosophies of reincarnation, or whether it be in the, the respondents to the actor's workshop that talked about what they, rather the actor's studio, that talked about what they hoped the afterlife would be about. There was a theme running for it, and it was this, I hope I'm righteous enough. That was the theme. I hope I'll be righteous enough to obtain that afterlife. And you might be here and not even believe in religion, but you're just doing a secular version of that. You have a vague belief that maybe there's some afterlife and you hope you do well enough, maybe as a parent, as a grandparent, as someone that works at their job, so that you'll be able to have that afterlife. Well, there's some things that are right about this. One is it's right to believe that the afterlife is a righteous place, a place that is full of goodness and love and justice and truth. But again, we find inconsistency in the way that we think about these things. 
For instance, uh, maybe you've heard people say this. I certainly have. When a, lo- uh, a loved one dies, uh, very casually people will say, well, they've gone to a better place. They've gone to a better place. But think about that belief, because a lot of people believe it. You may believe it here. How do we know that the next life will be a better place? I mean, after we've done with this world, what we've done with this world, how do we think that the next life's going to be any better? Or how would it be that we would be fit to enter this next life? That's a fair question. If someone's gone to a better place and it's a better place, you might remember the old adage that says, if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it, right? The idea that if, you know, we bring our own baggage, our own stuff, how could we be fit to come to a better place and actually inhabit it and not ruin it or tan it? And while there's inconsistencies with this answer, there are also assumptions that are made. And this is one that I I find is, is, you know, modern people that claim to be so logical. And it's this belief that when people die, magically and automatically, they become better people. Right? You often, that goes along with this idea of going to a better place. It's this belief that when people draw their last breath magically and automatically, they're going to become better people. Upon what basis can we even believe something like that? We've got to have something more solid, right? I often think, what would it be like if, you know, the same people that annoyed you on earth would be annoying you in heaven? The same bad habits that drive you crazy with your family, right? You move into the next life. We always say, I can't wait to see family members that love. You show up and go, oh, no, you're the same. (laughs) You bug me just like you did on earth. I mean, you know, we just got to think a little bit, right? Think a little bit about the things that we're saying. Well, the gospel brings us into something much more beautiful and much better. One, it tells us about an afterlife where righteousness is credited to you. Righteousness is credited to you. You are given what you need to enter the place. The moral cover charge to get into the place is given to you. Maybe you've had the uh, experience where your bank account or your coffee card, even worse, right, goes into deficit. You've got a debit. And you've got a debit until, right, it gets credited back up. Well, Paul is saying a similar thing here. He actually oh, ten times uses an accounting term that's translated counted or credited. You find it there. But the currency he's talking about isn't money, it's righteousness. You see the phrase, heir of the righteousness of faith, and being credited with that righteousness, he later calls being justified, right? Just like a a ledger is justified or a bank account is justified. It means to be reckoned in the sight of God. It means to be reckoned righteous so you can enter that afterlife in that world. In verse 24, you can read with me. It says, Righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Did you notice the basis of the righteousness? It's not, I hope I'll be righteous enough. The question is, has the Son of God been righteous enough? He is the basis for that. And that means a couple things. I mean, overall, it means that the good news of the gospel is that God came in person. God came in person to be our righteousness so we could obtain the afterlife. This is the good news of the gospel, and it happens through two ways. First of all, the Son of God comes and delivers us from our transgressions. That means that Jesus takes your court date for you. 
You know, imagine at the end of your life, all of us have to face a court trial that reviews every part of our lives. I mean, the first time that you ever stole. I mean, the really first time, like when you were one and a half and you saw that toy across the room and you're just, you know, you're just crawling. And you grab that thing and another kid starts crying and you do the 360. It's a really slow chase scene, right? You're not going to get far, you know. Or the first time that you rolled your eyes at your parents or teachers. Unrightly so. The first time you lied on a job. The first time that you were nice to someone just to use them. I mean, we could go on and on, right? I mean, it's, it's not a pretty picture. You and I stand in that court. I mean, we believe in justice, right? It's the American way. You and I need to reckon our lives need to reckon with God. And so what the gospel is telling us is the Son of God walks into the courtroom and he takes your guilt, he takes your judgment, and he takes your sentence, your second death. God sends his Son for the purpose to come and die for you that your transgressions would be removed because he wants you to obtain the afterlife. He knows that you and I have this life that we can't get past, we can't justify. So the Son of God comes to justify us with his righteous death on our behalf. And he doesn't do it begrudgingly. This is the amazing thing about the Christian gospel. It says, for the joy set before him that the Son of God did this, that God couldn't wait to do it that the Son of God's passion was to come and actually take the low place to be crucified, to suffer, to be humiliated because he so wanted you to be with him in the afterlife. But the gospel teaches not only that he came to die, that he came to live. Why was Jesus born and why did he live 33 years? Because you and I need more than just not to screw up and sin. We need to have a righteous life, a positive righteousness, a life where we've done good things. Oftentimes you'll hear people say, well, when I you know, get before God, I hope that you know, he'll say, good job. I, I've done well. You know, I, I, I tried. Nice try. This desire, we understand that we've got to have positive righteousness. And the gospel teaches that Jesus earned that righteousness for you. That he came as one, the lawgiver came as one who lived under the law. This is amazing. The lawgiver God said, I will submit myself so I have to obey all the laws that you have to obey. No other faith teaches this. No other faith actually provides a way where you can be confident of your righteousness. God comes himself and says, I will obey every commandment that you had to obey. And I will be tempted in every way that you had to be tempted. In his humanity he was. I will feel the pull. I will feel the burden. I won't float above you. I will walk with you. I will suffer the stripes. I will suffer the wounds. Everything, everything that you've gone through, I will understand. I will be tempted in the same way as you have been tempted, in like manner. You find these references throughout this passage about the law and the righteousness of the law. The gospel teaches that the Son of God, the Son of God came, lived a righteous life for us, and exhausted God's judgment against us. And so you and I find ourselves at this place of righteousness, but none of it would have meant anything unless the resurrection happened. 
Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the receipt that God received the payment. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the proof that God would accept those that believed in him by faith. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the sign that death could not hold him, judgment could not hold him, because he was sinless. That's why the resurrection is such a big deal. The disciples, when it first happened, didn't know what was going on. It petrified them. The thought that the resurrection was invented by the early church is preposterous. They were scared to death. Just read the accounts. They didn't know what was going on. It was until the Holy Spirit of God opened their eyes, they understood, oh, it was all for that that we might be justified before God. And so the promise, he tells us in verse 16, would rest upon grace. It would rest upon grace, afterlife by grace. And this is how the world is divided. It's really quite simple. The world is divided between those that are trusting in their own law-keeping for their afterlife and those that are trusting in the law-keeping of the Son of God for their afterlife. Which one are you trusting in? Because if you believe in an afterlife, and you believe that God exists, and you believe that has any semblance of what this world is like with justice and goodness and righteousness, you've got to reckon with that question. Is it your own law-keeping or the law-keeping of the Son of God? I have to say, when I read... um, other accounts of the afterlife, I, I, don't, I don't feel uh, proud, I don't feel arrogant, I don't feel dismissive, I feel sad. I see thousands of years of people striving and fearing and worried and wondering. God means to remove that from you today. He means to remove that from you this evening that you would no longer live with that uncertainty. God means you and I to have more confidence, confidence that is wrought upon the fact that the Son of God lived, suffered, died, and rose for me. And then that enables you and I to live differently in very tangible ways. I face that scary diagnosis in a different way because I'm convinced about the certainty of the afterlife. I'm able to sit on the deathbed of someone who's dying and say, I have good news to share with you about the afterlife. I'm able to wake up on a Monday morning and approach my job in an entirely different way because I understand that what I'm doing actually has some meaning for what I will be doing for eternity. Or I'm able to face the threat of bombs going off in my city. I got an email today from our partners in Turkey and they said, "Uh, please pray for us on this resurrection day. The state police have told us that there are viable threats that we will be bombed as we worship today. Certainty in the afterlife of Christ is what enables you to live differently today. But it's not just righteousness credit to close. There's another thing of how we obtain this. It's by trusting and not by working. Faith, you find, we said we found the word credited 10 times. You find the word faith 12 times or more in this very short passage the idea of faith, but immediately we have to think about what faith is and what faith isn't. It makes all the difference. There's a lot of confusing ideas about what faith is and what faith isn't. Faith isn't opinion. I think one of the most dangerous beliefs that I see in the modern world and modern people today is the belief that if I believe in something, it's true. It's a very dangerous belief. Meaning, if I believe something about God, it's true. 
If I believe something about heaven, it's true. If I believe something about love, it's true. If I believe something about reality, it's true because I have a right to believe, and my right means it's true. It's a very dangerous way of thinking because it it deceives us. It robs us of what really is true. In the Bible, faith isn't opinion. Faith is also not in opposition to the facts. This is often is what we're told that, you know, in the, in, in the modern world, there are faith and there are facts. Faith is for the private world, your private religion. You don't talk about it. Facts are for the public square. Now, it's interesting, in an age of religious pluralism, that's getting challenged, I think, in a good way. But it's this idea that faith is actually opposite of facts. But the Bible would say something different, that actually sin will blind you to facts. Sin will blind you to the most obvious thing that a child could understand. Like someone made the world. The fact that we can even explore the world leads us to that belief. We can be blind in so many simple ways. And so what happens is the Spirit of God, what He does is He actually turns you to God's facts. He moves you to reason. And so, you know, the idea of having faith doesn't mean I stop reasoning. It means I begin to reason differently. And this is what Abraham and Sarah did, right? As Abraham's waiting on the promise, he could reason. He could go, well, I understand, God, that you made the world. I can see that you made the world. I know that you exist. And I understand that you're a personal God and that you've come close to me. And I understand that one day I will meet you again. He could reason himself into these things just like you and I would do. You could look out in the world and you could say, you know, there's just no way that God could be an impersonal force. Why? Because you exist. You're so personal. You have such a personality. You have such a personality. You have such a personality. Eye print, fingerprints, all different, right? Personal, personal, personal. The God of heaven. How could the impersonal yield the personal? Can't. God is more personal than you and I will ever be. You and I begin to reason this way with faith. And faith turns us on to the facts of the world that God has given. A third thing about faith is faith is not interested in itself. Faith is not interested in itself. Faith is not interested in its strength. Faith is not interested in its maturity. Faith is not interested in its performance or its perfection. When faith becomes about itself, who is the object of faith then? We become the object of faith. And in these other views of the afterlife, that's what you have. I am the object of faith. I have to be the one that gets me into the door. But the Christian faith is telling us that God is the object of faith, that Jesus Christ becomes the object of faith, that I lift my eyes from myself to my Creator. And therein I begin to see where my righteousness is, who I am, where my hope is. His law-keeping, His righteousness becomes the focus of my faith. Faith also transcends circumstances. It's able to transcend circumstances. You know, Abraham and Sarah, there's this discussion in the passage that they, they were constantly living with the fact that they were really, really old, and God said, you're going to have a baby. I mean, they had to sit there and, in a sense, deal with their bodies day in and day out, getting out of bed. Oh, that hurts, right? They had to live, and faith demanded that God was saying, I know how real your body is, and I know how real you feel, but I'm more real than that. You know, C.S. Lewis has this wonderful, uh, you know, the, the great divorce, if you know the story. But it's this idea about heaven, and, uh, you know, people taking a bus ride to heaven. 
And when they get to heaven, those that, you know, aren't fit for the place, the rocks hurt when you sit on them. When someone tries to pull a flower up, it's too heavy. They can't even lift a leaf up. The grass hurts their feet because they're not fit for the place. They're not fit for the place. Well, you and I can look at ourselves. You know, John Calvin had this great quote where he said, you know, we look around and we see mortality. God tells us to look and see immortality. We're covered with our sins. He declares that we're righteous and just. We're rightly deserving God's judgment, but instead he gives us testimony of his kindness. You and I are constantly called to look away from this. For you, it may be, um, it may be your body that God's calling you to look away from. It may be your family circumstance, your marriage. It may be your job circumstance. It may be your financial circumstance where he's saying, child, look away and up to me. Faith transcends circumstance. But lastly, faith transfers its trust from ourselves to God. And that's really where we need to end, and that's really what you need to do and I need to do. The good news is, is everybody has faith in this room. Even if you call yourself an agnostic or an atheist, you have faith. Maybe it's faith in progress, maybe it's faith in science, maybe it's faith in pluralism, but you have faith. And what God is calling you and I to do is to transfer our faith and ourselves and our righteousness and in the world and place it on Him. And as you and I begin that, we begin to see God in a new way. We see our lives in a new way. So the question that Jesus poses to us is the same question that he posed to his disciples when they were on a boat on a stormy sea. He looked at them and said, where is your faith? Not do you have faith, but where is your faith? So the question is, what are you doing with your faith right now? Think about where you're struggling. Think about what you're worried about. What are you doing with your faith? The resurrection of Jesus Christ enables us to start not just living this life, but living the afterlife now. Let's get on with the business of living. Let's take the certainty of what Christ has done for us and take it through these doors and into the city and into our lives, into our family, into our relationship, into our trials, into our troubles, because Christ is risen for that very thing. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for what you have given us so that we might know you and have the confidence that we will be with you on that final day. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Glenn. Jesus gave us this table, the bread and the cup, to remind us of the body that was broken.